This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Dr. Norman Swan, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I really have enjoyed the book. I received it a week ago and it took me, I think I read it in two sittings, right? Uh, But while I was reading it, I was up and down, firstly, to get a tape measure, secondly, to check my pantry, three, to check the salt content in my food. It's entertaining. It's funny. And it's really, really informative. So congratulations. Thank you very much, very kind of you. Although I am a bit worried that it got you up in the middle of the night because the main goal of the book is to actually stop you worrying about stuff rather than start you worrying about stuff. <laughs> no, 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 I didn't get I'm a great sleeper. It just got me up and down while I was reading it, which I All thought right, was a good, good thing anyway. So don't worry about that. So uh, you got some I did... incidental exercise while reading the book. That's fine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Uh, nothing wakes me. I'm an eight hours a night girl. You know, I then I'm an early riser, but we can talk about that later. Now, for those of you who don't know who Dr. Norman Swan is, I mean, I don't know where you've been if you don't know who he is, in the, particularly in the last year. Dr. Norman Swan trained in paediatrics and became one of the first medically qualified journalists in Australia. For over 30 years, he has been informing and guiding Australians on a range of health subjects, regularly appearing on the 7.30 report, Four Corners and The Drum. He also hosts ABC podcast CoronaCast, providing the public with trusted information about COVID-19. Now, that's another thing. I thought the book was going to be about COVID until I got it. It's not. There's barely a mention. Yeah. So now I want to go back to how Dr. Norman Swan all started, like, you know, where you grew up and how it is you became interested in science. Um, Well, I grew up in Glasgow in the west of Scotland and in a Jewish household, a Jewish family who had uh, migrated from Russia, as many as most Jewish families had in Glasgow in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. My grandparents came from various parts of what was called the Pale of Settlement, Lithuania, Ukraine, and so on, what, what, what are now known as those areas. And they came as refugees and um, built a life for themselves. They started off life in the Gorbals, which is a tenement slum was a tenement slum suburb of Glasgow just south of the river and like most refugee groups of different kinds not just Jews they you know they worked hard and moved slowly out further into the suburbs in the south of Glasgow and that's how I grew up um, and I grew up in an environment that um, wasn't very healthy it was my mother had a chip pan on the stove well of course, since I've been doing these interviews, I've started to say stove, but in fact, I, I say cooker. I, I don't, stove is not a natural thing for me to say. I still talk in Scottish language. But we, we would have had chips um, once or twice a day. And Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, my parents smoked 20 a day until they were probably about 50. And the uh, you know I remember being in smoke-filled rooms as I grew up in smoke-filled cars. It was just revolting. And, and that was the environment I grew up in. And, and it was essentially... 
the, as I discovered when I went to medical school, had the highest rate of coronary heart disease in the Western world, apart and one of the highest in the world if you included parts of India. Mm. So that was the environment in which I grew up, traditional Jewish and unhealthy, big time unhealthy. <laughs> you talk about that a bit in the book. I mean, nobody, so- nobody took exercise. A gymnasium, yeah. when I grew up, was a seamy place in a back street where you know guys went to sort of build their bodies and that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think gym and that wellness phenomenon came later. But I think about when I was little, and you would know that with your own children, we moved around a lot. Like, you know, in the summer holidays, my mother would say, okay, be home in time for dinner and off we'd go. You know, mm. there was no sitting at home being sedentary and looking at screens or anything like that. It was a different. No, no, you're out. You're out on your bike and going around. And yeah. that's one of the. And that's one of the. One of the things I talk about in the book is that, you know, we think that traditional diets are healthy, and the, and the Jewish traditional diet is not healthy. It's, it goes back to probably the Middle Ages or certainly Central Europe, and the uh, you know it's high carb, high fat, a lot of red meat, uh, and so on. But it intersects with our lifestyle. And one of the themes of the book is that. What we love to do is slice and dice. We love mm-hmm. to separate out all these things, you know, about carbs, about protein, about nutrients, about exercise, and so on. And if there's no other message you take away from the book, it's the whole caboodle. It's the whole deal. And our mind and our body are one. We, we tend to resist that notion, particularly if a doctor tells us, well, you're feeling a bit depressed, that's making your pain worse. You know, piss off. You know, you're, you're telling me it's in my head. Well, your head is part of your body. He's not insulting. He or she is not insulting you. It's actually talking about something real because how we react in the environment. So that's one of the things. So when you look at the, for example, the Central European diet, which I grew up with, add on the unhealthy Scottish Western, Western Scotland diet. If you look at the Amish in North America, that's the that traditional group of people who are very religious and reject modern technology. They eat that diet too and eat thousands of calories a day. And it's very unhealthy by 21st century standards. But they tend not to get much diabetes and heart disease. But that's because they're burning maybe 6,000 calories a day. Mm. So you can cope with a bad diet to a significant extent if you are getting exercise. Not totally. I mean, they don't smoke. And they say, well, what about builders, laborers? On Wednesday, they were 6,000 days. Yeah, but sometimes they have actually quite an unhealthy diet. They drink too much and they smoke. And that's where this toxicity falls in as well. Um, So that was a long end. So to a short question. So did you grow up wanting to be a doctor or wanting to be a journalist? No, I grew up wanting to be an actor. Oh, so my, <laughs> okay. you didn't yeah, mention that in the book. My, my goal, I still want to be an actor, actually, but the, <laughs> nobody wants to hire me. Oh, I think you've got the opportunity. I think you've got the opportunity now. I think anybody will have. Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, oh, good. All right. Well, this, is, you can, this could be my audition. I can um, be your agent. So, yeah, okay, thanks. So, um, no, I wanted to be an actor. Yeah. And I, um, but try telling a Jewish mother <coughs> that her son's going to be an actor that, that rather than a doctor. That doesn't, doesn't work. I'm sure you could say that to a Lebanese mother or an Italian mother or a Greek mother. Yeah. You know, they just wouldn't have been over, wouldn't be over the moon about that. And they weren't. And I realized that it was much safer to be a second rate doctor and a second rate actor. So in fact, medicine was an easy choice because you don't have to decide anything. You become a doctor, you know, somebody will give you a job and you just got to be reasonably good at it so you don't kill people. Mm-hmm. That's a key, I'd say, right? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of important. It's lesson number one, day one. <laughs> yeah. See, the thought, I mean, I wouldn't have had the marks to be a doctor, obviously. I faint at the sight of blood. I, you know, I can't. But you'd be surprised I- how many medical students faint at the sight of blood. Um, anybody who's 
contrary medicine will tell you anywhere in the world about their first day where they've got it. So we, we learn how to take blood from each other mm-hmm. rather than on patients. And on that day, there's always two or three people in the room who just clump to the floor. <laughs> but we all get over it. I wasn't yeah. one. I hasten to add. So did you study? Where did you study in Scotland? I studied at the University of Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland. Right. I started off at Glasgow University, which is where I grew up. Yeah. Um, and there are four ancient universities in Scotland. There's Glasgow, Edinburgh, St Andrews and Aberdeen. Anyway, I, I, I just got totally fed up being at home. And I just worked hard to get good marks so that I could transfer. And I transferred to Aberdeen in my second year and finished my medical, did the rest, most of my medical course at the University of Aberdeen. Mm -hmm. And how did you get to Australia? Why did you come to Australia? I had a bit of a a crisis, um, slightly overstating it. But when I was at medical school, it all came back that I wanted to be, you know, I really wanted to be an actor. I did a lot of acting and directing at university. And then I started working in London as a resident in surgery and then in pediatrics. Anyway, it all came back to me that I didn't want to get to my 50s and look back at my life and wish there was something else I'd done. So I decided that I would really try and do a right angle turn at that point. And I did an audition for the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, which I failed miserably at. So this audition is not going well already uh, between us because I'm showing how terrible I am <laughs> at acting. And I, I'm sure uh, I can still do something with you. Don't worry. <laughs> so anyway, I film is bad, and I really sort of thought, well, what what am I doing here? I need a bit of a break, and I wanted to continue training in pediatrics. And I was wanting, I was aiming to get on a training rotation at Guy's Hospital in London, but I, I missed the boat. Just my timing was off, and I had a year before I could reapply. And I wanted to get my exams under my belt. So I thought, oh, I'll go to Australia and spend a year there. That allows me to travel out, travel back, get a bit of experience overseas, which won't do any harm. So I got a job at the Children's Hospital in Sydney, came out here for a year and never went back. Do you know, I lived right down the road from there. I grew up in Glebe. Yeah. Right. So we're talking here just to, for every, all of So the, the main Children's Hospital in Sydney for many, from you know, most of history has been that there was the Royal Alexander Hospital for Children in Camperdown, which is near Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. And it subsequently moved out to Westmead, which is now known as the Children's Hospital Westmead. But I was there when it was at Camperdown. Mm-hmm. It's now an um, apartment block. It is. Firstly, is there any difference between studying medicine, like let's say in England or, or, or Scotland, to studying in Australia? Like was there any cultural differences in the approach to medicine? Well, I can't, I can't tell you because I was never a medical student in Australia, although I've taught medical students. You know, when I arrived here, it was clearly much harder to get into medical school in Australia than it was much more competitive than in Britain because you made more money. In my day, you didn't make much money in medicine. So it wasn't – it was popular, of course, but – it wasn't as popular here, but all, and therefore they had to get super high marks. So they were much, they were very, very bright. What what really astounded me when I started teaching them is that they were no different, really, from medical school medical students in Britain. We didn't take it quite so seriously. Mm. So the gossip in the tea room in Britain was, you know, who was having it off with whom, you know, who was having an affair with whom, and what was going on, and we'd be joking around. And I found that the the gossip in Sydney was much more medical and um, (laughs) it was was much more medically focused, not not nearly as interesting. It took me ages to find out who was sleeping with who. (laughs) Do you think in terms of health systems generally, because I always think 
overall that we've got a really good health system, although I, I'm a, a supporter of socialised healthcare, even though every time we have a Liberal government, they're trying to break that up. But I do think, and, you know, of course, I've had bad experiences with hospitals and doctors, but overall, I think it's a good system. Were you looking at those comparisons then? Did you notice differences in terms of organisations and how our approach to medicine? My experience um, in medical training has always been in hospitals. I've never been a general practitioner. So I was, I was a hospital-based mm. doctor. So my experience is really in hospitals. I've done the odd GP locum, but basically I, I did my training in paediatrics and worked in hospitals, and I quite like working in hospitals. And, that, and it was from hospital medicine that I jumped to the ABC. So I don't really, and I never finished my Australian training in paediatrics, so I don't call myself a paediatrician. I just trained, did a training in paediatrics. In terms of hospitals, National Health Service hospitals in those days was really not well, were not really well managed or organised. There was constraint on resources. And sure, there was constraint on resources here in Australia, but... You know, you could order tests, you could order scans. Um, it was just much easier to actually get on and do the business of medicine in Australia, in an Australian hospital, than it was in a British hospital. I think the difference, anecdotally, is in general practice. I think it's easier in Britain to do good general practice than it is in Australia. I, I, I'll take that back. Uh, for Australian general practitioners, it is much easier to order tests and get things organised for your patients. But the system is more geared to general practice to a large extent in Britain than it is here. So it's easier to be a GP in Britain than it is here. Here, you're separated from the hospital system. Uh, you're, you tend to be quite isolated. And so you're, you're really good doctors, incredibly well-trained, really know their stuff. But the system kind of conspires against, you know, to the extent of integrated team-based care. It's much easier to do in Britain and it's partly the way GPs are paid, right? They're paid peacetime here. They're paid by consultation. Whereas in Britain, there's a much more bundled payment where you're paid to actually do care and you can you can flex that in the system. But the doctors are just as good here, if not better, you know, than Britain. It's just the system, I think, is a bit better for that. But you know, I was just getting a bit fed up with the NHS, which I think is a good system, but it's underfunded. Mm. That's how you all are, I guess. I have one gripe with GPs that I'm going to share. Um, I've got a fabulous GP. But the wait times, and I think you go to the GP, you make an appointment for 12 o'clock and they see you at one thirty, and you think what other business could survive that? You know, specialists are even worse here. But I do think COVID has changed that a little bit. They're a little bit more attuned to being on time these days, I've noticed, and telehealth because they don't want people sitting around in their waiting room because of COVID. Sure. We're getting through much more quickly. And I think, well, that's been a positive <laughs> COVID influence on GPs, yeah. I think. The average wait time is about 30 minutes. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Anyway, so talk to me then about the transition from working in hospitals, being a doctor and working in hospitals, to being a journalist. How did that come about? Well, it was another little crisis. So after a year or so here, I realized, because I was getting paid much better, you know, hugely better. I mean, I think my annual paycheck my last year in Britain was two or three thousand pounds a year. I mean, it was really, it was <gasps> very, very little. You know, it was, very, it was wow. a tiny amount of money. And it was $70,000 when I got to Australia. So the so the difference was was huge. And you could afford to think about things. And I realized that if I wanted to try stuff out, I could in Australia, because if I went part-time, I was getting a, a living salary. I could never go to part-time in Britain because I needed to work full-time to, to just live. So I, and then I got acting out of my system and I decided that I wanted to write. And I started to write and nothing much happened. Write fiction? Then, yeah. Well, I, yes, fiction stroke movie scripts. And um, uh, I, I was kind of a bit jammed on that. And I started to, thought, I'll just start to write what I know about and I started to write about medicine. And I ended up getting a few things published in newspapers. So it was more like medical journalism. But I didn't know anything. When you, when you have a training in medicine and a patient comes in, you don't know what's wrong with them. Your training tells you what you do. You just go back to basics and you ask questions and you work it out. And you've got a system for working out and getting you know, to sort things out. I had no system for journalism. So I would look at articles I'd written one of which had been rejected, one of which had been accepted. And I look at it and I couldn't see the difference between them. And I couldn't understand why. And I realized that if I wanted to continue in this, I had to get a job or train. And I was no, there weren't really many journalism schools and there wasn't really interested in training, going back to university. And so I tried to get some jobs and I went to Fairfax and you know they weren't interested. And I was about to go after a while doing this I was going to go back to full-time pediatrics and I was going to do respiratory pediatrics and become a respiratory doctor and I the week I decided to do that I opened the Sydney Morning Herald and there was an advertisement to you remember the days when there were advertisements in papers yes, yes, um, I do. and there was an advertisement for a producer to make science and medical programs on ABC radio on what became Radio National was then known as Radio 2 and I thought, that's actually my dream job. I hadn't articulated or thought about it. That was my articulated my job. And I was always being an avid radio listener in Britain to Radio 4. And here I found Radio 2, Radio National, when I got here and was an avid listener. So I spent a week writing my application form. And to the astonishment of anybody who knew me at that time, and certainly to my astonishment, I got the job. Yeah, wow. You're, um, I, I think, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are many people like you out there, but you know, there is the left brain, right brain thing, the science and the arts. And I guess your head's always in conflict with that. Is that right? No, it all comes oh. together. That's I'm really lucky that I've got so a job. So you're not that, separated. <laughs> yeah, that's not at all. Um, no. where that comes together. That's the joy of my work is that mm. I bring hopefully some creativity and, and thought like that to the um, task of communication mm. and translation. I've I've been thinking about what has made you so successful, particularly in the last year, and and how your communication appeals. You know, because that's very very difficult to get that across. You know, to get a message across, I feel that the person delivering the message has to have expertise first and foremost. But two, there needs to be some kind of charisma, if you like. You know, where 
the people out there need to believe it and also like you. And you seem to have that, don't you? Well, look, I think it's about trust yes. um, more than anything else. Yeah. And I think that you've got to respect that trust. And that trust means that you tell people mm. the story as it is. You don't sugarcoat it. You don't avoid stories that might be unpalatable. And you tell it as best you can according to the evidence of the moment. And you admit your mistakes and correct them quickly. So that I think that's what it's about. It's about if you say something or you cover something, it's as accurate as it can be. And if you get it wrong and you do get it wrong from time to time, you correct it. And the pressure cooker of the last year means that from time to time you do make mistakes. And the information is changing all the time, isn't it, with COVID? Absolutely. It's only a month since we were complaining or six weeks we were complaining there weren't good ads for vaccines. Now we don't need ads for vaccines because, you know, as we're speaking, because there's queues around the corner for vaccines. Mm. The hesitancy has gone. Mm. That's just in a matter of six weeks how quickly things change. Mm. So how did you become the expert on COVID? And how much did you know about it? And did you see it coming? I've always been interested in public health mm. and epidemiology. I was interested in that at medical school. I got some I got very good undergraduate tuition in epidemiology and public health. So I've always been interested in that. I've always been interested in social medicine at university, which is how the world, the environment, how we live, how much money we earn, our education, our occupation, how all that comes together to, to affect our health. Um, in many ways, that's what interested me about paediatrics because that's exemplified in our children and how our children grow up in paediatrics is is really the combination of all those things together in our children. Um, so you, you can't just treat a child with a, an antibiotic or a drug. You're treating the child in the context of their world. So I've always been interested in that. And in the late 80s, the early 90s, I made a four-part series for television on pandemics. Um, so I've always been interested in pandemics and where they came from. I was the first person in Australia, probably, or the health report's first outlet in Australia, to really cover AIDS in detail or internationally with Laurie Garrett, who's now a very prominent health journalist overseas in the United States. And I made the series on pandemics, where they came from, how they arose, and that was shown that was with Channel 4 in, the, in Britain and SBS television here and shown in 27 countries. So that was a series I did then. If you like, the, the, the soil was tilled for that. You don't just, from a standing start, cover something like COVID. It's the decades and personal interests and knowledge it's like, it's like you go and do an exam. When you were in medicine, and you, always, you always get an oral exam as well as a written exam. And you'd swat up for your oral exam. But you always got asked stuff that you hadn't swatted for the night before. You'd learned two years ago or three years ago. And so it is with COVID-19. It's stuff I'm pulling upon from undergraduate knowledge, postgraduate knowledge, training in pediatrics, the series I did on pandemics, continuing interest in HIV AIDS as a pandemic, this pandemic has just followed the textbook. There's, not, there's nothing new about this pandemic. And so that's why I was able to do it. And anybody who'd done that could have done what I'd done. That, that, that's why it was. If I hadn't had the ABC as my home, which gives me the freedom to explore those areas and do that stuff and, and get that freedom to develop as a journalist, couldn't have done it. Um, mm. a, a health journalist in a commercial outlet pressured to do you know, the story of the day and, and uh, you know, and be in a sausage factory producing these things, even though they're very good, 
They don't get the chance to develop like that. Mm. So I was lucky. I got the chance to develop like that. And that's where it came from. And that's where the book comes from. The book comes from, so you think you know what's good for you, comes from all these years of working in health, reporting on it, getting a whole picture, being able to see the progression of ideas and how ideas change and how people can get confused and realize that people are very confused about the evidence because they've seen one thing one day and seen something else the other, and they don't know what to believe or what the situation is. And that's a far more important story than COVID, to be honest. COVID will pass eventually, but the important story is understanding where we are in the world, who we are in the world, how we be in the world, and how we eat, sleep, exercise, and so on, but how all that comes together. And I felt that was an important story to tell. Yeah, when I was reading it, you know what I thought happened? The reason the book came about is, and I'm sure this, I thought that this is was happening to you. So because I've been in the book industry probably as long as you've been doing your job, when we used to go out or when we used to have people around, you know, I'd sit next to somebody at a dinner and I'd say I worked in the book industry and, you know, I've got a business that's reviewing books, blah, blah, blah. And so people then will confess about, you know, when the last time was that they read a book, you know, why they stopped reading. And then they'll ask for a recommendation, you know, what is it that will get them onto reading? And I was thinking when I started reading your book that you're at the dinner party, you're sitting next to somebody and someone asks you what to do and then they tell you their health problem. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, I don't get that that much. Um, no, not that much. I get, I get, I get some um, people at the ABC will phone me up to say who's a good doctor in such and such an area. And um, if I know, I'll tell, I'll give them a recommendation for a, a doctor. But, you know, I don't, I don't get it that much. I'm, I'm bored stupid by that sort of, you know, when I'm at a dinner party, I want to talk about politics and world affairs or art or something like that. I've, and, in, and interestingly, if you look at my range of friends, very few are medical. I don't like talking shop. No, but it does come up, I guess. Okay, yeah. so um, it's a highly accessible book and it's written with more humour than I imagined. Tell me what it was like to sit down and, because, you know, you've written over the years, but this is long-form writing. It's a big book. Yeah, I mean, when you write for radio and television, and, and writing is a really key element to both media. If you're not in radio or television, you don't realise just how important writing is. But it's writing short. Mm. I mean, last night I was doing a 7.30 story and you're writing, you know, and it's just something we've got a fantastic editor called Clay Hitchens who just goes through the writing and cleans it up after you've ag- agonised on it. I mean, he's fantastic. And Justin Stevens, the EP, is great at it too. But this it's all about the writing and how you talk and how you express yourself. But it's in short form and it's telling a story in six minutes, five minutes. In news, it's telling a story in 90 seconds. And so that's all about writing. So you learn to write short and you've never learned to write long. And that you're right. <laughs> that is a key. That was a key thing. So you just had to settle into it, and not rush and tell stories. So how I how, how I got into the groove with it was telling anecdotes, personal anecdotes. It's a bit of a memoir as well. Hmm. Um, and I used anecdotes or personal stories to illustrate larger points. And that's where you're, that's where you could be funny and and, t- and tell self self-deprecating jokes and so on, and then move from there to beyond that. Although the audience I had in mind for it was a millennial audience when I was starting to write it, because I've been talking a lot to millennials. I knew what was interest, what interested them, and they're very engaged in their health, got very good questions about their health. This is not a question and answer book. And then I realized that these were themes that everybody's interested in, from 
how you eat, what you eat, how you exercise, how intense you be, how you be in the world, psychology, a lot about sex, a lot about drugs. But people read differently now. So I kind of wrote it, not tongue-in-cheek, I wrote it. So there's always a, there's a paragraph at the beginning of each section. So if you can't be bothered reading it, or you want to know whether you want to read it or not, you get the paragraph and you know what's there. And then during it, I'll say things like, well, if you're getting bored now, you can skip two paragraphs, but there's an important And I did do up. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you missed really important stuff, can I tell no, you? When it came to the kids section, it wasn't applicable. So I just kind of read the headlines and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. And, and that, that kind of amused me as well as yes. thinking that it would be a good technique. I just hate... I really wanted to, I'd love to be more of a humorist than I, than I am. Um, so I, I was dipping my toes in just how far you can take being amusing in a serious topic. And that, and that it was really an antidote to other health books. So other health books are often somebody wagging their finger at you, telling you what an idiot, you know, they never say that, but replying, you're an idiot, you've been eating all this crap for all your life. And if you only do it my way, Here's a simple solution for all your all your problems, and there are no simple solutions for all your problems. Mm-hmm. As H. L. Mencken, the humorist, the American humorist, said a hundred years ago, for every complicated problem, there's a simple solution, which is always wrong. But the word holistic does not appear anywhere in the book, and I try and call out a lot of bullshit words as well, which just mislead you and take you up the garden path. I mean that whole wellness business. I mean I don't know where that came from. You know, if you eat oats for breakfast and you know avocado for lunch, you'll be fine. Well, that doesn't happen. I mean I do think, and you, I, I don't know whether you agree with this, but I think that there is such an obsession now about what we eat and the way we exercise and the way we live our life. And there's this whole boom in you know activewear and and everything else. Yet there's also a boom in mental health issues. They're not necessarily linked. I don't think they're necessarily linked. I Do think, you, don't you think we put such high expectations on ourselves? Yeah, I think I think that uh, mental health issues, where they come from in young people, is complicated. But mental health issues do start in adolescent years. It's very complicated and poorly understood. No, I think that people have different goals for themselves, and at all ages not just people who are in their 30s and 40s. It's, mm. it's um, do you want to look good? Do you want to have a flat abdomen? And there's nothing wrong with that. Do you want to have big muscles? Most people feel great after a bit of intense exercise, and that, that really gets you hooked on feeling great, which is a good thing because it means you will take more exercise. A lot of people feel gluggy after they eat so a lot of carbs and they eat too much, and they, they, want to, and they know if they change it a little bit that they feel better. But... They also get, we all tend to get caught on in fat. So it's the raw food fat, mm. which is great. So eating raw food is much better than buying processed foods mm. uh, in, the, in the supermarket. But in fact, and what I show you in the book is that cooking is really important and how you cook and what you cook with and the herbs that you use. And the fact that you use extra virgin olive oil, which has got all sorts of stuff in it. And that cooking together in a certain way is actually an anti-aging phenomenon. Uh, you produce anti-aging compounds. Uh, sofrito, which Lebanese know only too well, it's got different names, but it's the basis of a lot of Middle Eastern and Mediterranean cooking, which is onions cooked with olive oil and garlic and tomatoes and various herbs and spices. That base is an incredibly healthy base, which has anti-aging compounds in it that are much more potent than anything. There's nothing on a pharmacy shelf that comes anywhere near that. And so it's, it's understanding that and taking your obsession with food that little bit further and relaxing about it is that, you know, if, if you have a bit of butter 
it's not that bad for you. If you have a lot of butter, not good. But if you but if you have a lot of saturated fat as meat, that is bad for you. So you just got to balance out what you do. And there's no one food substance that's going to either make you live longer or make you live shorter. There's but there's a pattern of eating and living which will help you live longer or live shorter. And what I try and describe in the book is what that looks like. And you want to live longer. Sure, we all do. But you want to be able to be healthy at the same time. I mean, no point being sick yeah. as you're getting older. That's that's hard. So the, the glib line is living younger longer. That's exactly right. So you're as long as old as possible. Now, listen, when are we going to get out of this pandemic? Um. Well, we will never get out of COVID virus. That's going to be with us forever. And when we reach 80 or 90% immunization, that's when we can start emerging. And when we've got new vaccines every year for the variants that emerge, and when the low-income countries in the world are immunized. So it will start to settle down in 2022, I suspect, as more and more people get immunized. But we'll be really in serious danger until there's glo- a global immunization campaign, a proper one for COVID-19. And that's going to take three, four, five years mm. because the West is obsessed with getting immunized. And can, you can understand why we're living through that at the moment in Australia. So it's going to take a while, but 2022 should see some significant differences. I know you, you said that you uh, enjoy talking politics, so I am going to <laughs> raise this. I often think about this because at the time when COVID broke out, we had Trump, we had Boris Johnson. And I often think if we had a different global leadership at the time, that maybe things wouldn't have got this bad. I think if there was a more global united approach to the disease or to the virus, that we wouldn't be where we are now. I um, believe that... COVID-19 would not have become pandemic 10 years ago. And that's because Obama was in power. Mm-hmm. Xi Jinping had not become the strong authoritarian leader he's become. Essentially, COVID-19 landed in a world run by fragile men with authoritarian personalities. So Trump, uh, Boris Johnson is not that authoritarian, he's yes. just a bit daft yeah. um, and, and ideological. Bolsonaro, Duterte, Orban and others. And it landed in a world where with unprecedented lack of international cooperation. And that's why it spread, really. And if it had landed in China 10 years ago, they'd had they'd been bruised by SARS-1 and they would have probably opened up sooner and not been quite as secretive about it and asked for international help. And we'd have got on top of it sooner, although it's a much more dangerous virus than SARS-1. So it still could have got out, but we would have probably got on top of it internationally much faster. So humans cause pandemics, not bugs. You know, obviously you need the bug, but the biology of the bug is the least important part of it. It's how we live. Politics causes pandemics. Dr. Norman Swan, thank you so much for your time. I am just one of those people that is addicted to watching you. (laughs) Love it. You're very kind. Thanks for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Eating, follow us on Facebook or visit bettereating.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, 
join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.